Don't call it a comb back. I'll have hair for years. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, girl? Grab my glasses. I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios. I hate to say it, it was kind of cool. This is the Press Box with Tyler Bischoff. Bitch-ass white boy. Adam Candy. Let's move on with our life. When they store Normandy, they knew that they were going to be cast and they're still being rich. Ed Graney is on a plane returning from Minnesota for a game seven. So Adam Candy is in instead. And it's becoming all too familiar for the Golden Knights to be in this position. The first bite. Are the Golden Knights jokers? Is your mic on? No, it is not. Okay. I can't hear anything coming out of my headphones right now. I think my uh I think the, the board's broken. Are the Golden Knights jokers? About as they performed about as well as Jared just did right there. Uh, so for the third straight season, the Golden Knights have had a three-one series lead, and then they face a game seven in that series. So, Adam, is it is it simply if they win, we forget about it, and if they lose, they are chokers, and something has to change? Absolutely, I, I think you nailed it on both counts, Tyler. If they win, then at the beginning of this series. Did anyone think that it would be easy against the Minnesota Wild? No, of course not. I mean, this is the worst possible matchup the Golden Knights could have drawn, and Minnesota has made life just as difficult as we expected Minnesota would make it for the Golden Knights. But on the other side of this, let's not forget that even though this is a 2-3 matchup, the Golden Knights were a tiebreaker away from winning the President's Trophy this year. And if you're that good in the regular season and you can't beat a Minnesota Wild team where you have held their best player completely down. Kirill Kaprizov has been a non-factor in this series, and yet the Golden Knights still find themselves in a winner-take-all come Friday. Well, fortunately for the Minnesota Wild, Mark Stone has become a non-factor as well in this series. Um, I here's, here's what's amazing to me, how pathetic they were in that game. Like, they had a chance to close out the Minnesota Wild in Game 6 after failing in Game 5, And after we heard Pete DeBoer talk about how they deserved better in game five because they played well and they had so many shots and they dominated the second period but couldn't get to that three-goal mark to tie it up, we heard how they deserved better and how much better they played than Minnesota and how if they played that way again, you know, they win that game nine times out of ten and then they show up in game six and play one of their worst games ever offensively. Through two periods, this team had three high-danger chances. Through the first period alone, they had a massive .15 expected goals like they let Minnesota dictate that game the Gold Knights ended up taking 62 shots in that game only 23 made it on net because everything was from the outside everything was from the point they got nothing dangerous they got nothing in the slot nothing in front of Cam Talbot and now again for the third time in three years and what three times in the last five playoff series that they've played they've got a 3-1 lead and face a game seven coming off Two years ago, one of the most incredible choke jobs you've ever seen against the San Jose Sharks, and then they managed to avoid it last year against Vancouver, but two chances to close this series out against Minnesota, and they have two goals in two games, and you look at the players on the team, Mark Stone, zero shots on goal, 
He only had one shot attempt in the entire game, and he missed the net. He wasn't credited with a hit or a takeaway, and the Tuck Stevenson stone line had the worst Corsi of any Golden Knights line last night. That's $9.5 million in Mark Stone. $8.8 million in Alex Petrangelo. He actually had five shots on goal last night, but 38% Corsi was second worst on the team, and he was on the ice for two Minnesota goals. The second line, William Carlson, Jonathan Marshall, Riley Smith, that is $15.9 million. Four total shots on goal, under 50% for expected goals rate. Shea Theodore is getting paid $5.2 million. He actually had six shots on goal in this game. Had a good expected goals rate. He's got zero points in six playoff games, though. And then Alex Tuck. I mean, you're getting $4.75 million. He's finally playing on the first line. We've been waiting. When does Alex Tuck get his chance to play consistently on the first line? Here it is. One shot on goal last night. Four that missed the net. Two games in a row. Alex Tuck has probably had some of the best opportunities of any player in the games and has just completely missed the net multiple times. The best players, the highest paid players on this team were nowhere to be found in a closeout game. And it's it's baffling how bad they were last night. And you look at their history, it's you got to be really worried about what's going to happen in Game 7. Well, you have to be worried about Game 7. I think less about the Golden Knights and more about the Minnesota Wild. This is a team that has never lost confidence, despite the fact that the Golden Knights came back in Game 3 and then in Game 4 and largely dominated them. Yes, I know the Corsi says that Minnesota was pretty good in those games, but when you were watching the middle of Game 3 and Game 4, you never really thought the Minnesota Wild were going to win, and all you heard about from that point on was, well, the Golden Knights needed a while to find their game, and now they're up three games to one. Now they just have to close things out. And, of course, that has not happened. Uh, I will give them the one excuse they deserve to get, Max Pacioretty has been their best goal scorer for two consecutive seasons and has not played for quite a while. That being said, this team was constructed to be up against the salary cap so that you had depth, so that you had other scorers. And that line that you just mentioned, the Tuck, Stevenson, and Stone line, it, look, it, it has at times looked like the best line for the Golden Knights in this series, and it has looked like the worst line for the Golden Knights in this series, and that's a problem. That's an absolute issue if your number one line is looking like the problem. No Golden Knight in this series has more than three points. And you mentioned Alex Tuck, and this is the frustrating part to me with Alex Tuck because go all the way back to the Stanley Cup final against oh. Braden Holtby oh. and the big paddle save, and that was Alex Tuck missing big opportunities. And there are times he looks like a world beater, and there are times it looks like the world has beaten him. And that, to me, is really, really worrying. But, of course, if you're going to talk about that line, you have to talk about Mark Stone. And you have to talk about whether Mark Stone is going to step forward for this team in Game 7 and take the reins. Because otherwise, I don't know the Golden Knights are moving on. Yeah, and the, the, the Max Pacioretty injury obviously has a big effect. But when you move Alex Tuck up to the first line, the expectation there is that the first line is going to be good, that you're going to suffer on the third line. Your depth is going to suffer when you move Alex Tuck up. The problem is the Golden Knights' first line with Alex Tuck there, and he's been there the entire series except for the first two periods of Game 1. That line has only been on the ice for three Golden Knights goals in this series. Basically six games, and the best line has only been on the ice for three Golden Knights goals. And that's simply not good enough because when you move him up, your third line, last night it was Cody Glass, but, you know, Janmark and Nick Waugh and Keegan Colasar, like, you're not really going to get a ton of offense out of those guys. You have to get it out of your top two lines, 
and the first line hasn't been good enough, and the second line hasn't been good enough. I mean, Carlson, Marshall, and Smith, like, they're lucky that Mark Stone's on this team and had zero shots on goal, because what have they done? Like, they're supposed to be good. They're supposed to be a line that helps this team win the Stanley Cup, and right now, they're not doing that. Like, they're not actually producing goals for this team. It's just, like, this is a team that's supposed to be contending for the Stanley Cup, and not that the Minnesota Wild are bad, and not that we thought the Golden Knights were going to, you know, roll through the Wild in the first round, but for you to be playing like this against the Minnesota Wild in Game 6 for a chance to close this out and for you to have to go to a Game 7 when you were up 3-1, to one, like that's a brutal scenario and it makes you think this team has almost no chance to win the Stanley Cup because Colorado's sitting around just waiting for Minnesota and Vegas to finish. Yeah, that's the biggest problem with this. You can look at the Golden Knights and say, okay, no big deal if you go out and win Game 7. It was a tough series. And if you had told me at the beginning it's going to take them seven games to beat the Wild, I would say, yeah, that's that's about right. But then you look forward and you see the Colorado Avalanche sitting there and realize that this has been the best team in hockey when healthy the entire season. Like they finished tied with the Golden Knights in points while missing Nathan McKinnon for a significant period of time, while missing Caleb McCarr, while missing Devin Tays. This is a team that is going to be the biggest challenge they face. That being said, let's just even give them that. Let's say they get past that. You're likely looking at a deep, strong Toronto Maple Leafs team beyond that. And what have you seen out of the Golden Knights outside of five periods in this series? The second and third in Game 3 and the entirety of Game 4 that tells you that this team is poised for a Stanley Cup run. The only thing you can look at is Marc-Andre Fleury, who in general has been the best player for the Golden Knights in this series. Yeah, it's been like we're, we're watching a team that multiple years in a row now have been a very good regular season team. And then for whatever reason in the playoffs, it's whether it's blowing the three, one lead to San Jose, where in the first four games of that series, the golden Knights literally couldn't stop scoring. Mark stone had more goals than like half the teams in the NHL. After four games, Mark stone and the rest of the team didn't do anything in the last three games of the series. And then last year where we were looking at it, where the golden Knights path to the Stanley cup final was just paved for them. Right. They got the Dallas Stars in the Western Conference Finals and lost in five. And now we're sitting here again talking about the same situation where the Golden Knights should be better than the team they're playing. Like regular season-wise, they were, and they should be better than this team, and they're going to lose it again. It's it's becoming this bizarre team where they're really good in the regular season. They're going to make the playoffs. They're going to have home ice advantage more often than not. But for some reason, they get to the playoffs and it's just, no, we're going to blow a 3-1 lead or we're going to lose in five to a team that's inferior to us. It's bizarre. Now, I do want to talk about one thing, well, related to the game and that he couldn't play, but unrelated to the game, and that is Braden McNabb. So he misses the game after getting put on the COVID list. Pete DeBoer, when asked about it last night, didn't really want to comment, but he did say, you get a test result back and you have to isolate. Um, I'm right in assuming Braden McNabb tested positive, right? Unless it's someone else who only Braden McNabb came yeah, into okay. contact okay. with. Yeah. So I guess, A, we shouldn't expect him for game seven. I know we're in the realm of, like, vaccinated players, but it, is it weird that only Braden McNabb was on the list? Like, there, there wasn't close contacts for the Golden Knights? I don't know what to believe when it comes to the COVID testing in the NHL and the playoffs because we just came away from <laughs> right. a week last that. week in which the Golden Knights <laughs> had nine false positives. So... The one thing that I can be sure of is that if Braden McNabb actually got to the point of being pulled out of the lineup, I can assume 
he was tested like 17 <laughs> times to make sure that this was an actual positive because otherwise I would think the Golden Knights would be screaming to the NHL to say, wait a second, you just screwed us over with all of these false positives. And I have to be honest, Tyler, when I saw that Braden McNabb was going to be out yesterday, that's the first red flag that popped up for me because when you just talk about reliability as a defenseman, that's just been Braden McNabb. He has been steady and reliable for this team. He's probably their best defensive defenseman. And you pull him out of the lineup and everything changes for them. So no McNabb, no Max Pacioretty, and oh, no Ryan Reeves. Oh, poor Ryan Reeves. That's what they were missing. They needed Ryan Reeves to score. How, I mean, how do you expect to score without Ryan Reeves? Well, that's not that. It's that the Minnesota Wild finally were not intimidated. Oh, that's a good point. That is a good point. Actually, you know what's a fun stat? Uh, so far in the playoffs, the line with the best expected goals rate is the Connor McDavid-Leon Dreisaitl line at 80%. They got swept, by the way. They had a line that was at 80% expected goals playing their most minutes, and they got swept. The second best line by expected goals, Will Carrier, Patrick Brown, and Ryan Reeves at 75%. All right, so let's talk about something here because you're you're talking about analytics, and we talk all the time about how you dominate the analytics long enough and good things are going to happen. And here we are, Tyler. Here we are talking about six games in this series where the team that dominated Corsi 4 lost the game. How is this happening? And how is this happening year after year for the Golden Knights, right? You talk about them being a good regular season team. Well, the same numbers that lead us to say they're a good regular season team are still there for them in the playoffs. The Corsi 4 is still up they generally have been pretty good in terms of high danger chances although minnesota has been slightly ahead of them at five on five in this series but it's not as though that much changes about the things about the golden knights that we say make them good in the playoffs and yet in the playoffs it doesn't happen for whatever reason and i think yesterday's game was the best example the last few playoff series teams keep them to the perimeter like they they'll they'll let the Golden Knights shoot, and with Pete DeBoer, they've got no problem shooting from the point. That's why Shea Theodore and Alex Petrangelo led the team in shots on goal last night, is because they will the teams are perfectly fine letting the Golden Knights launch from the blue line, and they're going to pack it in, they're going to block shots, and they're going to clear rebounds, and the Golden Knights can't create high danger chances. We talked about it earlier this week, you and I, about transition opportunities and how that's how the Golden Knights kind of got their offense going earlier in the series. If they don't get that, they don't really score in the, a setup offensive zone time because that all they get is shots from the point and they get no rebounds, they get no second chances because it's all blocked or caught or whatever. And I think that becomes the issue where you can rack up the Corsi numbers and the, the expected goal numbers, but it doesn't actually translate to real goals because teams are saying, yeah, keep launching from the blue line. We'll seed some possession throughout the course of the game as long as you don't get a great chance. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into the potential of the Oakland A's and maybe the Minnesota Timberwolves coming to Las Vegas. Now, just staying on this topic for one second, this is about basketball. I have an important official announcement. Uh, this is very serious. Want to get this out? Message to Trey Young uh, on behalf of the people of New York City and, and anyone who cares about actually playing basketball the right way. Stop hunting for fouls, Trey. Uh, I want to quote Steve Nash, one of the great player, great coach. He says, quote unquote, that's not basketball. Trey, Trey, that hawk's not going to fly in New York City. Come on. Play the game the right way. See if you can win. I think the Knicks are going to teach you a lesson. 
Hey, Adam, does Bill de Blasio deserve credit for the Knicks winning game two? I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? <laughs> How many free throws did Trey Young shoot last night? I don't. I, I didn't get to watch much of it. It's not about how many free throws Trey Young shot. It's about Bill de Blasio, the one thing that can unite all New Yorkers. Uniting New York around hating him. <laughs> Van can't fix the friggin' subways, but he can get the Knicks a win. That's right. That's what's important. That's what I'd care about if I lived in New York. Just like what you should care about if you live here. Not education or, or any roads or anything or employment. It's how much money are we going to give the Oakland Where's the A's weed money? to come here. And we do need the weed money, don't we? So Mick Akers of the Review Journal reported yesterday that uh, the A's are estimating a new ballpark in Vegas would cost a billion dollars. Now, the Rangers just opened a new ballpark that has a retractable roof. Presumably, we would need one here or just a straight-up dome. Their new ballpark, uh, the cost was $1.1 billion. So that $1 billion tends to make a lot of sense there. Um, but I guess the question is, they also want some sort of public-private uh, partnership here. If the cost is $1 billion, like how much do you think the A's want in public money to get this done? Like, Would they want half of it? Or are they saying, hey, we just want two or $300 million? I love how we talk about it. Half of it, or two hundred, yeah. two or three hundred million, five hundred million, two or three hundred million, whatever. What's a few hundred million between friends who just paid seven hundred fifty million for a football stadium? Look, I would find it shocking if they found any of those public dollars from the state of Nevada, because not only did we just go through this with the Raiders, but think of the political will and the arm twisting by Sheldon Adelson that it took to get that money out of the legislature. And it still wasn't easy to get that done. And now, post-pandemic, or post-worst of the pandemic, now we have Clark County having to dip into the bond reserve to make the payments on Allegiant Stadium. And so we have everything that those who are opposed to this would need to point to to say, wait a second, why would we even consider <laughs> doing this when we can't make the payments on the first stadium we have? Okay, so here's my question on this: Are we actually have pe do we have actually have people learning from their mistakes? Because in that same story from Mick Akers, uh, his source indicated that the county doesn't have a desire to put up public money for a ballpark. And you just mentioned that with the Raider Stadium, they are having to dip into that bond reserve fund to make the payments on the bonds. Uh, for the second time, the stadium hasn't been open a year. For the second time, they've had to do that. Plus, if you go back a couple months, the Nevada Current wrote a story about uh, the projection for jobs the stadium was suppo uh, supposed to produce during construction. Supposed to be 11,000 full-time jobs. It produced 2,700 full-time jobs. And there are people from the Nevada legislature that are quoted in that story saying, we were lied to. This isn't what we were promised. So are we sitting here with people actually learning from the mistakes of, hey, why the hell did we give so much money to the Raiders and none of those things they promised are actually coming true? Here's the problem. We knew right from the jump. We, we knew. knew. From the you and that I some knew. Of those things. We, you and I knew. But the amount of times we heard Las Vegas is different during that two-year process was absurd. All right. I'm going to give the smart people who were behind this the credit they deserve before I say the rest. Because the projections this was based on made sense and still make sense. 
outside of a pandemic, right? Outside of a catastrophic event that kept people from coming to Las Vegas to pay the room tax. That much, that much deserves credit. Now, here we are though, right? It, it took one event that had nothing to do with Las Vegas specifically to throw the projections for this off. And of course the bond reserve is there to cover for a time like this. That's why it's there in the first place. But $750 million happened under a different administration with a different legislature. Are people learning or are we just highlighting in fact some of the things that we assumed might happen when it came to not only constructing but operating the stadium? I was trying to be positive about humans, Adam. I was trying to say, look, we have learned from mistakes and you're telling me no nobody learns from mistakes there's just different people in charge oh wait a second hold on wait wait wait. you were trying to be positive about humans yes i believe uh, in humanity what i, I don't understand the, did, did something in this show change from when i was on on tuesday um no i always believe in humanity what you really you don't think so yeah, he oh, doesn't believe in individuals he believes in humanity as sort of like a large group <laughs> Oh, it's sort of a, it's sort of a collective that if enough bad people get together, something good will happen. Got it. Need a large sample size is what we need. It's the importance here. So, I I find the A's thing interesting because I agree with you. I have a hard time seeing them getting public money, significant public money out of this. Like I could see like the city of Henderson saying, "We'll give you this land for free or whatever, something like that. We'll pay to build some roads around your stadium." But I have a hard time seeing the, hey, the Raiders got $750 million to build a $2 billion stadium. You know, we want $400 million to build a billion-dollar stadium. That's what, like, I'm on your side with that. I, I don't know how that actually gets done here because I don't think Henderson can do that. I don't think downtown Las Vegas can do that. And it doesn't appear as though Clark County has any interest in doing that whatsoever. Well, there's also one other factor that we have not talked about. And that factor is named Bill Foley. Uh Mr. Foley was not particularly happy with the public funding that the Raiders got for their stadium and hasn't been shy about talking about it when he privately financed his part of T-Mobile Arena. Well, that was when Bill Foley hadn't brought a successful hockey team to this valley. That's before Bill Foley became the name that he has in Las Vegas. And I don't believe that Bill Foley would sit on the sidelines quietly while another sports franchise came in and potentially <laughs> split up the pie of money that is available for uh, marketing, advertising, sweet dollars, any more than has happened. That is complete and total speculation, but it is extrapolating what we saw in his comments about Mark Davis getting the money he got and wondering, well, how would he feel now that he actually has a little bit of influence in this town? Well, hey, if Bill Foley actually gets a piece of the A's, maybe they'll actually spend money on players for once. That's absolutely true. There's no pesky salary cap to deal with in Major League I, Baseball. Oh, my God. I'm surprised Bill Foley didn't buy a baseball team for that reason. Like, he bought a team with a sal in a salary cap league. Why did he buy a baseball with a team? low salary cap. Yeah, they wouldn't have to be worried about this. We're only skating 15 guys tonight because we had to go up against the salary cap all season. It's baseball. Just Can we go back? To, like, just for a second. I know we're talking about the A's. Skating 15 guys <laughs> in the most important game of the season that turns out to be the reason, at least in part, that you're in game seven against the Minnesota Wild as opposed to getting crazy Jordan Bennington and the St. Louis Blues in the first round. Yeah. Front office masterclass. That's what they say. Coming up next, David Roth joins the show. 
we're happy to talk to him. He just seems happy to talk to anyone. David Roth from The Defector is with us on the press box. Subscribe to The Distraction on Stitcher and use the promo code DISTRACT for a free month of Stitcher Premium. All right, David, are we at a point where Knicks fans are already obnoxious two games into the playoffs? Uh, yeah, I mean, we were at that point a, a month ago. Um, I think <laughs> as soon as it became clear that the team was good, everybody was kind of like, oh, cool, Like I can be like this again. But I just watched a video uh, right before we, we came on, not to get motivated, although it did have that effect on me, of a bunch of kids just dancing around to the Go New York, Go New York, Go song that they used to play to get people <laughs> pumped up in, like, 1994. And it was like a real uh, like shirtless Hofstra University party energy out there. Like None of those kids were alive when that song was getting played in the stadium. But uh, they seemed excited. That's good. I think as long as the team doesn't lose, we're probably all safe. Well, so like, if they win the championship, then like we'll probably have minimal property damage. Well, I've decided. Uh, short of that, it's hard to say. I've decided I, I want the Knicks to win this series, even though I like Trey Young and the Hawks more. I want them to win just to see another series, especially one where they probably get swept against the Sixers. Yeah, I think the Sixers one would would get really bad, especially because the <laughs> Sixers fans were also acting out last night. Like someone threw popcorn on Russell Westbrook and stuff, and you know. It's kind of a cliche to say that, like, every time something uh, stupid happens, you're like, oh, we're back to normal. Nature's healing. But, like, a Sixers fan throwing popcorn on Russell Westbrook and then Knicks fans reading way too much into a win over the literal Atlanta Hawks after they lost a game, uh, like, it does kind of feel like, uh, you know, the first green shoots of a, a new spring Exactly. The, don't don't yeah, take... I mean, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I like watching... Uh, this Knicks team play more than I've liked any others. I also think Trey Young is an amazing villain. So I'm I'm hoping for just if this was a seven game series, like I think it's stupid the first round uh, series or seven games, but like I would watch seven games of it for sure. Yeah, well, after Dikembe Mutombo and the Sonics, David Stern wasn't having any more of this five game mess in the first round. So I just want to back up what you're saying about the green shoots because as a New Yorker and as a Knicks fan, absolutely no one will take this win away from me. I don't care if it's the only one they get. I got to watch the New York Knicks win a playoff game for the first time since 2013. I have actual hope for the team for the first time in a decade. And James Dolan has beaten me into the kind of submission into which I say to myself, as long as I have a little bit of hope, I can keep going. Yeah, that's how I felt when the Mets made the the World Series in 2015. Like, it, it's you know, it stands to reason that eventually it would happen. Like, only so many teams... You know, in the NBA, it's like it's weird that you haven't won a playoff game in since 2013. Like there was like a whole presidential administration in there, you know, like and just everybody was kind of not playing good basketball for that entire time. Like, but you know, a lot of teams make the playoffs. But I remember being—I don't know if I told this story on here before—like covering that World Series, uh, and fans were wearing like these, like they had like clearly just freshly laundered Mets jerseys that they'd like put away years earlier, and they were like, "Well, if they're ever in the playoffs." <laughs> I'm going to get this Todd Hundley jersey dry clean and wear it to a baseball game. <laughs> and so they were like, everybody was walking around like they were having like a lucid dream, you know, like just kind of like shaking strangers' hands and being like, it's great. I love your Rico Bronya jersey, man. That looks excellent. You must have had that for a really long time. And I think like for Knicks fans, especially like seeing like how hyped up like some of my younger friends are for this team, like they really probably barely remember a good Knicks team. Like I'm old enough to remember the teams that made, you know, like made the finals and like, they weren't no fun to watch, but they were like, they were very good. 
But, like, if you were born five years after me, like, you really haven't seen a good Knicks team. And, I mean, like, what is the one that you remember best, Adam? Oh, it's absolutely the 94-95, right? I mean, I, I still have yeah. nightmares about watching Akeem Olajuwon block good John Starks in Game 6 when they had a chance to win the finals on that shot before he turned into bad John Starks in Game 7. So you just, <laughs> you just said it. Yeah. There were absolutely no fun to watch, but it sure as hell was fun to watch the finals. Yeah, and they were good. You know, like, that's the thing with this team, too, that, like, the Mellow teams were, I mean, when Mellow was very good, Mellow was fun to watch, and the, and the team was good. But this is a team that's, you know, borderline superstar-free, you know, like, depending on whether you think. I have seen so much of Julius Randle as Julius Randle that this new <laughs> version of him is still kind of hard for me to get my head around. But they're really tough, man. They compete. Like, they're not a, a team that's going to, you know, I think win the Eastern Conference or whatever, but, like, they'd be really annoying to play. Whereas I think with the Mellow teams, it was just kind of a matter of, like, how far Mellow could drag whatever, you know, 33-year-old former NBA All-Stars uh, Dolan had arrayed around him. And that wasn't really, you know, a blast to watch. No, no, not at all. And Mellow will also have to drag around the albatross of having killed Linsanity with him. So, you know, that <laughs> yeah. that is no fun whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, that's still the most fun that I think I've had. And I'm not even a Knicks fan, but that was the most fun I've had as a New York sports fan. Like, people that didn't even care about the Knicks were, like, calling me and be like, we're watching the game tonight. And I was like, you have kids, first of all. Second of all, like, <laughs> when did you start caring about the NBA? But then, you know, we went and watched because it was like something stupid was happening every night. Okay, who is the Knicks version of the Todd Hundley jersey at a Mets game 10 years after Todd Hundley was relevant? Like, who was on that Carmelo team that would have been Todd Hundley? It was, like... Raymond Felton on that team? I so I have a Ray Felton jersey oh, uh, that geez. I got at Goodwill, and I would <laughs> I would never wear it. It's like the blaze orange one. Like I would wear it in a scenario where I was hunting, I guess, like just for safety. <laughs> but I don't think that I would wear it like for fashion. Uh, but it is like that one. I think the one that uh, that I've seen at thrift stores the most. This is like a it's not a scientific survey, but like I, I've gone to a lot of thrift stores. There's a lot of Iman Shumpert jerseys out there, like way more than you'd think. Oh, and we believe. Like, <laughs> we believe. I don't know how people talk themselves into it. It's like kind of a weird, like hipstery pick where it's like, you know, like Melo obviously does a lot of stuff, but I'm kind of a big Shumpert guy. You know, like he gets you. <laughs> it's a strange choice. Evidently, at some point, all of those people were like, all right, well, I think it's time to cut bait on my Iman Shumpert jersey collection. So you, those are pretty easy to find in the greater tri state area. See, if, if you want to really show your chops, you want to really be the hipster who says, I was there before it was cool, find yourself a Michael Sweetney jersey. Find yourself oh, years when you really had to talk yourself into a horrible draft pick like Michael Sweetney. Or, alternatively, you could go with Chris Dudley. Yeah, I mean, Dudley is like just basically, that's like a political statement at this point. You're like, you know the thing where Shaq pushed the guy? This is the guy he pushed. Like, that's how what? I see myself. Like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> a real, really bold choice. The one that, uh, like, uh, there's something about the, uh, like, the older Nick jersey, like the, you know, the Patrick Ewing sort of, like, colorway. Every time I see one of those, I get really excited to see, you know, who the the player is on it. And it's almost always, you know, like, one of the, the more sort of prominent guys. But I've not given up hope that, like, somewhere out there in this city of millions of people, there is a guy with a Ronaldo Balkman jersey that I will encounter on the street. I knew that's what you were going to say. <laughs> so when I worked, when I worked at Tops, uh, this was like 
you know, a lifetime ago, but I um, was there for like the rookie shoot the year the Knicks drafted Balkman, and he was like easily the strangest interview I've ever had. Uh, barely talked. He talked entirely through his big like sort of Humpty Hump sinuses, so everything came out just kind of like echoey and weird. Didn't like answering questions. He just wandered off. All the players were in their uniforms at the Knicks practice facility in White Plains. They were like getting their pictures taken, and I asked them some questions for stuff that went on the back of their cards. It was a pretty cool day. There was a barbecue in the middle of it. It was nice. Uh, I shook Marcus Aldridge's hand, which was like a career highlight for a while. Uh, and Balkman, so they're all in their uniforms. They're dressed up for the pictures. And Balkman was just MIA for like 90 minutes. And he was just kind of, I, like, as far as anyone could tell, just kind of left the facility and just walked around White Plains dressed in his game uniform for like an hour and a half. <laughs> and by the way, for anybody who is familiar with the area, you're not exactly walking around Midtown Manhattan if you're walking around White no, Plains in your game jersey. There's not even sidewalks. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're basically, you walk to the New York State Thruway, and then you look at it in your giant billowing Knicks shorts, and you're like, wow. <laughs> and then you walk back. That's all there is to do. Oh, God. I love it. I, uh, I love it. Uh, uh, David, I did. I did want to ask you, as a Mets fan, about uh, Jacob Degrom pitching against the single A Palm Beach, Palmdale, whatever the hell they were, Cardinals. And um, do you think they got paid enough to face Jacob Degrom forever? <laughs> I, I loved that uh, the stories. Um, Cespedes barbecue guys got the quotes from the A ball guys that were facing him. It was so. I feel like crusty baseball guys will get mad at them, but they, it was something really heartening. These are like, you know, proper prospects, but it's like their first time using wooden bat, you know, like it's like the <laughs> lowest level of minor league baseball. And he comes out throwing 102. They were funny about it though. Like the kids, I'm sure that, you know, you have to go up there being like, whatever, you have anything I can't hit. But like after the game, like everybody laughing at how good he was and being like, yeah, that was really dumb. Like they shouldn't let guys throw that fast. It's not safe. Like, I think that's awesome. Like, I so rare do you get, like, a baseball guy actually admitting, like, yeah, I couldn't see it. Like, it was going way too fast. <laughs> like, I think that was really gratifying. Do we? Do you have an answer? Because I, I didn't look into it. Why did they send him to single A? It's just where the team, that's the uh, spring training facility. So my guess is they wanted to, like, monitor him medically. I mean, they should have, if they wanted to, you know, have tickets going on the secondary market for triple digits, they would have sent him to Brooklyn. And had him pitch, you know, to which is now like a advanced. It's like a different. They, that used to be the rookie ball uh, or short season team, but they've you know because they cut half of minor leagues. Like they everything's been shuffled. But the thing that's weirdest about it to me is that like they, so they do like to send guys to uh, St. Lucie. I think also because it's famously like the most boring place on earth. So like you can't get in trouble there. There's like a Buffalo Wild Wings, but it closes at like seven thirty p.m. So there's like really you can't do a bad thing. But all the guys that they've sent there in rehab, they were talking about this with like Syndergaard and, and Seth Lugo, that they were kind of like, they were working on their health. They weren't like trying to throw as hard as they could or like use the full pitch mix or anything. And DeGrom was evidently healthy enough that he was just like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to scare a bunch of teenagers. Like I'm going to throw a 94 mile an hour slider to someone who's never seen a fastball move that fast, which I, I kind of respect. I think if I could do it, I would probably handle it. Well, he is David Roth from The Defector. David, as always, we appreciate it. Hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Have a good one. <laughs> oh, poor <laughs> Palmdale, Palm Beach Cardinals, whatever they were. That turned into an impromptu <clears throat> remember some guys Knicks edition. It did. It did. Yeah.
Raymond Felton. I don't even know who Michael Sweetney is. Should I know who Michael Sweetney is? If you want to troll the Knicks, you absolutely should know who Michael Sweetney is. Well, the problem is, is I think you're the only Knicks fan I know. So I, I haven't. I don't have much practice other than you. So maybe I need okay. to. I need to well, sharpen up my well, skills. Well, considering I'm the only Knicks fan you'll be co-hosting this show with, it would be useful to you. I'm giving you the ammo. Yeah, I mean, you know, you guys got about a week left in your season, so it's not like I need to be worried about this long term. There like it is. That's so. see. There's the guy who believes in humanity. Yeah. All right. Coming up next, you're not going to believe this. It's unbelievable. College basketball coaches are still complaining about the transfer portal. Is Tyler a know-it-all? Can you prove him wrong? Tweet at Bischoff underscore Tyler and at Ed Graney. Again, not going to comment. My door is always open. My phone's always on. And there's a, a level of trust that we want to build here with the players. All the players know that. But again, on my end, we have private conversations. Those are private. And I'm going to keep it that way. Oh, I'm pretty sure the transfer portal is the best thing that's ever happened to college basketball, but I'm not a college basketball coach. Gino Ariemo, not a fan of the transfer portal, uh, coach of the UConn women's basketball team. So a story in ESPNW yesterday with some of these quotes from Gino Ariemo. It was going to be a mess from the beginning, and it's a mess now, and it's going to be a bigger mess each and every year. A lot of these kids are delusional. You know, they have so many voices in their ear. That's Gino Ariema summing up what he thinks of the transfer portal, but he got a lot more specific. And I enjoyed this one from him. He said, if we as coaches just call a kid in and say, look, you know, I thought you'd be a lot better than this, so I'm taking away your scholarship, we will get crucified. But yet a kid can just up and leave for no reason whatsoever other than I just don't want to be here anymore. I don't like it here anymore. Adam Maybe it's different in women's basketball, but I highly doubt it. Does Gino Ariema really think coaches don't push kids out the door that are on scholarship? Gino Ariema appears to be under the impression that that never, ever happens. And yet we know for damn sure it does. (laughs) Of course it does. He just wants it to look like the old way in which a coach tells a kid, you're not going to play. You probably should look somewhere else. But the coach retains the ability to block that player from going to any school they don't want them to go to. Um, That that leads into the other quote from Gino Ariema, where he said, and you know, every time that we're in this situation, I always ask the kid, what's wrong with you? That's my first question. Whenever a kid wants to transfer, I say, what's wrong with you? You're in a great place. You're starting. You're playing a lot of minutes. You seem to be, you know, really successful. So there's got to be something wrong with you. And then when they answer me, if I like their answer, then I go forward. If I don't like their answer, then I say I'm not interested. That's exactly what he's talking about, or what you just said, that he wants to be able to block it if they don't give him a good enough answer as to why they don't want to play for UConn anymore. Or vice versa, if they were playing somewhere else and they wanted to come to UConn. And that's the perspective that Gino Ariema can have on this that others can't have, right? Of course, everybody wants to play for UConn. And so he can ask the question, what's wrong with you? Because if you got to UConn, maybe you thought to yourself, I was going to be a starter at UConn. I was going to play with Paige Buckets. But then I ended up buried at the end of the bench. And I want to go somewhere where I can actually play. Or you're coming from a different school, in Gino's case, where you say, you're a starter. You're playing minutes. Why would you want to come here? Well, 
because I play at Middle Western Northern States and I want to play at UConn. Like, it's not that hard to understand. <laughs> I just, I like, we, we know from UNLV, we know for a fact that coaches push players out because when TJ Otzelberger took over, there was a mass exodus of players. And before the NCAA obviously implemented the, hey, everyone that transfers can be eligible, the way the process worked was that if a player transferred from a school, the NCAA would essentially ask that school, hey, were you planning on bringing that kid back? And if the coach said no, that player would be immediately eligible at his next school. So when Otzelberger took over, that happened for guys like Trey Woodbury, Ben Coupe, Turvel Beck, right? They all went on to Utah Valley and Kent State and Little Rock, and they played right away because Otzelberger basically said, we didn't want them back, right? We, we pushed them out the door. But Joel Tomblay and Jonathan Chamwachachua were not immediately eligible to go to Texas Tech and Baylor because when the NCAA asked, UNLV said, no, we wanted to keep them. We have a scholarship for them. So we know, we know for a fact that coaches push guys out the door, and I can't comprehend how Gino Ariema would be out here saying otherwise. Now, another fun story or tweet, I should say, is this one from John Rothstein about the men's side of college basketball. Rothstein tweeted, sources... Multiple mid-major programs are opting to not play guarantee games against high major programs because it gives power conference teams a free live evaluation of future players who could move up via the transfer portal. And I don't think I've ever read a bigger lie in my life than that tweet from John Rothstein. Do tell, Tyler, why is it a lie? There is no way in hell that mid-major programs are going to turn down games against power conference teams based on the fact that they think those coaches will get a free live evaluation. First off, they're guarantee games. If they're playing a guarantee game, you probably need the money for your athletic department. Second off, this is assuming that the coaches of these power conferences are incapable of evaluating players based off video, that they have to see them live to be able to evaluate them and then recruit them in the transfer portal in the future. And third, all we hear about every March, every Selection Sunday is how you got to have quad one, quad two wins. Mid-major programs have to play the power conference teams to get those. If you have any hope of being in the NCAA tournament, you got to play those games. It would make zero sense for a single mid-major program to turn down a power conference team. Tyler, it's, it's almost like John Rothstein might have sources at power five programs who want to put that narrative out there because the power five teams don't want to play mid-majors are you suggesting that john rostein tweets things from coaches without checking to see if they're actually true or not no he only does that with agents <laughs> just as long as you're still getting the good luck text messages from john rostein you're good